So have you ever tried to move a piece of furniture through a door when the door wasn't big enough for that piece of furniture? I feel like I have been doing this my whole life. And the first time I really remember was when I was in college. My roommate and I and and some of our friends, we were in Seneca, South Carolina at Big Lots. And we came out of Big Lots and we looked over and there was a sofa sitting out in the parking lot. Now, we quickly realized this was not part of the parking lot decor. This was a sofa that had been ditched. So we walked over because we're college students. We're like, hey, free sofa. You know, this is great. So we decided we were going to take the sofa. And then I just think it's really funny if I remember the story right. One of us actually stayed with the sofa, afraid that someone would come steal the sofa in the parking lot. And uh, we, we went back, found a truck, came and got it, loaded it up, drove it back to the dorm, took it out on the sidewalk, sprayed it down with lots of Lysol. And then somehow, some way, we got it through the teeny tiny door of my dorm room. And that sofa stayed with us for three years everywhere we moved. It it was fantastic. My guess is most of us have had a moment where we have tried to move furniture through a door that is too small. You know what would have been really great that day is if my dorm room had garden doors. Gosh, that that would have been fantastic. Now, there's there's huge garden gates, you know, like the, the big garden gate that you might see at, you know, some fancy estate, and you'd go through the gate, and that would take you into the garden. But, but more of a modern sense, garden doors would be kind of like French doors, and they're on the back of your house, and there's lots of glass in them, and they open up into this beautiful garden of silver bells and cockle shells and smoked applewood bacon trees, just all out there. There's no such thing as that, but it, wouldn't it be great if there was? <laughs> But, but this garden door that opens up and you're able to enjoy and, and see something that's, that's different. And, and the rea- reality is that garden doors are so much better than patio doors, okay? I, I know this from trying to move a huge chair through a patio door. There's only like one door, you know, it slides and then there's, there's nothing else. But garden doors, there's these double doors you can open up. And, and you can bring all kind of furniture from the parking lot into your house. You know, there's all this room for you to get everything inside. Well, today we're continuing our series, Doors, where we're looking at some of the most defining doors in life. And our message today is garden doors. Yeah, we'll be looking at Colossians chapter 4, uh, beginning with verse 2. Paul is going to show us some different doors, a whole different kind of, of garden door for us to consider. It's a door that we desperately need, but it is also a door that your family and your friends and this church and this community and the country need. There is this set of doors that can have an, an amazing impact on your life and on everyone around you and their life. So what are these doors? Well, let's find out. Colossians chapter four, beginning with verse two. Paul writes, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. The first step toward these doors that we need is to pray. That's the the first and greatest step. And what does it mean to devote yourself to something? Paul says, be devoted to prayer. What does it mean to devote yourself? Well, it means that you keep doing something, that you persist, that you endure, that you hang in there with it. If you are a fan of the NFL football team, the Cleveland Browns, you know what it means to be devoted, you know. To be devoted to something when rarely do you ever see what you are hoping to see, right? 
Well, that's part of what it means to be devoted in prayer. It means to be devoted in such a way that even if what you are praying will happen doesn't happen, you don't stop being devoted. Paul, in writing to the church at Thessalonica, he said it a little different. He said, pray without ceasing. That's true devoted prayer. Pray without ceasing. But that sounds a little crazy, right? I mean, how in the world can you pray without ceasing? Does that mean that you always have to have your you know, head bowed and your eyes closed? No, that's not what it means at all. The picture we have of, of praying without ceasing is more a reflection of the attitude of your heart than it is about just always having your eyes closed. It's not being at the stoplight and, and bowing your head to pray. Don't do that, by the way. Um, keep your eyes on the road and off your phone. Pay attention. But it does mean that when you're at the stoplight, you can bow the attitude of your heart. So you can still pray in that moment without closing your eyes. It's a way of life. It's not just something that you do. Being devoted to prayer is not something that you check off as a, a box of something that you accomplished that day, but it's a way of, of who you are and how you live. Marshall Siegel said this, God means for your life, married or unmarried, student or employee, young or old, to run on the power of prayer. Don't miss the depth of that. If you are not a Christian, you have been designed to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Even if you don't believe in God, you have been created with an insatiable desire that you may suppress and push back and reject, but you've been created with the desire to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And also you've been created for your life to run on prayer to the one true God. Marshall goes on. It's not coffee or chipotle or chipotools as I call it. It's not a social media buzz. It's prayer. It's not other things, it's, it's prayer, it's unique, it stands alone. Marshall goes on to say this, you need God in and through prayer more than you need anything else. Another little marinate moment, just, just think on that for a second. I need God, you need God. And, and the way that God has designed for that need to be met is through prayer. It's, it's God's design. But if we're honest, we would say prayer's a good, noble thing. Again, even people who aren't Christians might say, yeah, you know, saying some kind of prayer, that's a good thing. But, but even as believers, it seems to sometimes be an elusive thing. It's this thing that we feel like we need to pray, but just don't have enough time. Or, or maybe we're not saying the right thing or, or maybe we're not praying the right thing or using the right words or maybe we're not praying enough. I mean, how many times have you been praying and you thought, man, should I really be asking God for an A on this test? Should I really be asking God for that new car with the rally fun pack on it? Should I, should I really be looking for that? Should I be praying that God would help me open up my garden doors and see smoked applewood bacon trees all in my backyard? You know, we have these moments where we pray things and we're like, gosh, should I pray this? We, we struggle with prayer. E even if we consistently pray, we struggle. Marshall gives a very good definition of prayer that I think is helpful for all of our hearts. This is what he says. Prayer is conscious, personal communication with the God of the universe. 
So are you devoted to conscious, personal communication with the God of the universe? That, that's a real thing. It's, it's not a hokey thing. It's, it's not a fairy tale. It's a, it's a very real thing. It is good, and it is good for you. If you want to do something wonderfully selfish for your life, then devote your life to prayer. Devote your conscious attitude to prayer. Marshall goes on and says this, prayer is the most important thing you can do for the most important people in your life. All right, who's that? Just right now, go ahead and get them in your mind. Who are the most important people in your life? Whoever they are, prayer is the most important thing you can do for them. Not saying that you're gonna pray for them, right? We, we do that, you know, true confession. Hey, I'll be praying for you. Hey, I'll, you know, praying for you. But, but not just saying or texting that you're gonna pray, but actually praying. Being devoted to prayer is the most important thing you can do for the most important people in your life. Now, we know how to be devoted, right? I mean, gosh, we're just, you know, a, a very, very few days away from being devoted to college football, right? I mean, we know how to be devoted, right? We know how to be devoted to yard work and making sure the grass is green. We, we know how to be devoted to finding that, that new French police show and, you know, trying to watch the whole season, you know, in, in 30 minutes. You know, we, we know about TV binging and we know about being devoted to fear and worry. We know about being devoted to never trusting anything new, you know. We know what it means to be devoted to drama or to gossip or to vacation or to our jobs or to our families or our friends. We understand the concept of being devoted, but are we devoted in prayer? Are we devoted to this idea of personal, conscious communication with the one true God of the universe? That type of prayer is the most important thing you can do for yourself it's the most important thing you can do for your spouse, your kids, your parents, your teachers, your coworkers, your pastor, your church members, everyone in your life. Prayer is the most important thing you can do in your life and their life for this church, for this community, for the nation, and for the world. This is it. But again, someone may be thinking, that sounds nice. Prayer that sounds like a really, really good thing, but... I just don't have the time. Question, are you breathing right now? Then you have time to pray. Have you ever been stuck in traffic? Then you have time to pray. Have you ever played a game on your phone? Then you have time to pray. We, we have time to pray. It's not that the time is there, it's just that we have to reorient our mind. We have this thing that prayer only exists at the, at the front of the church. You know, the glorious thing about Jesus Christ is this is not holy anymore. Jesus is holy. I don't have to come to the steps at the front of the church to get right with God. I can get right with God in the parking lot. I can get right with God in my kitchen. I can get right with God in my backyard. Sure, it's great to pray in the church, but that is not the ultimate definition of prayer. Prayer can be a second, it can be a minute, it can be an hour, it can be days. It has all kinds of forms. 
Someone once said this, when it comes to prayer, don't ever underestimate what God can do in five seconds. Don't. I think I've shared with you all before, I, I have landmarks that I use to pray for people. Been doing that for years. My, my friend Wayne years ago had a, had a paper route and he had different people that he would pray for with every throw of, of his paper, all the different people. And I remember thinking, well, that's not long enough to pray. He goes, yeah, it is. <laughs> it's, it's enough to pray because in that moment, I, I can speak that person's name to the Lord. And so I've just taken that on from him and I have different landmarks. I, I have a football coach that I pray for when I pass the airport almost every single time I pass by. I have landmarks. I don't pray for 15 minutes on the side of the road at the airport, okay? I pay for five seconds, you know, when I'm riding by the airport. So, so prayer could be something that happens in a small amount of time. So get out of your mind that you've got to wear a robe and come sit in the sanctuary to pray. You can pray anywhere. You can speak to God anywhere. So let me just give you this very simple challenge. Pray. Devote yourselves to pray. When you're watching TV, pray. When you're watching the game, pray. When you're afraid, pray. When you're angry, pray. When you're worried, pray. When you're frustrated, pray. When you're cutting onions, pray. I mean, well, whatever. Whatever you're doing in life, pray. It, it, it's, it's not something that's hard and difficult. This is not a, a difficult science project. It is just clearly speaking to the Lord. Devote yourselves to prayer. And let me give you a, a secondary challenge within that. And the challenge is to learn how to pray for people instead of just talking to people and asking people questions. Really, I want, you to, I want you to hang your coat on this one, okay? It's very, very, very important. Someone said something to me yesterday afternoon that has had a, a huge impact on my life, and I, I just want to pass it along to you. Learn when a Christian or a non-Christian is going through something really hard in life, and they don't say anything to you, but hey, just pray for me. Here's what I want you to do. Pray for them. Don't ask them a bunch of questions. Don't demand information. Don't say, give me more specifics so I'll know how to pray. Hug them and pray. It's enough. It's Christian. And then keep praying and keep praying and keep praying. And this was what I was told yesterday. I love this. There are moments in life when we as Christians don't need to pull out the microphone for more information we need to pull out the umbrella. We just need to protect from the rain. We just need to hold and hug and encourage. And can I just confess for all of us, we're all terrible at that. We're terrible at it. You know why? Because we want to know everything. We demand information. How dare we don't get information from the DMV or from the White House or from our doctor. I can't believe I've got to wait till tomorrow to get that test result. We demand everything. But as believers, when someone's life is falling apart, throw the microphone in the trash can and pull out the umbrella and just pray. You don't have to know. Just pray. Just pray. Just pray. 
Paul says, devote yourselves to prayer. Let it be a part of who you are. And notice how he says we should pray. Look at the next part of verse 2. With an attitude of thanksgiving. Look, we're not always going to be thankful for everything, okay? But we can be thankful in everything, right? I mean, I may not be thankful if my team loses. I may not be thankful if, you know, the the bill from the hospital is a lot higher than I thought. I'm not going to be necessarily thankful for my car breaking down some way on the way to Arkansas. You know, I'm not going to be thankful for some things, but I can be thankful in those things. Why? Because whatever's happening in our life as believers, whatever that is that's happening in that moment is not our ultimate reality. Our ultimate reality is that we have been saved by Jesus Christ. And because we've been saved by Jesus Christ, it changes every single thing in every moment. I can be thankful in my salvation 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I can be thankful in my salvation because I received mercy, not justice. I got what I didn't deserve. I've been redeemed. I've been saved. I am loved by Jesus Christ. I promise that matters on the side of the interstate when steam's coming out of the engine. I promise that matters when the clock ticks off and your team loses. I promise that matters when the doctor says there's nothing else I can do. To receive mercy from Jesus instead of justice, it matters every second of every moment of every day. Therefore, if we are in Christ, we can be thankful in all things because we have Jesus. Now, I realize that's easier said than done, right? And look, I ain't perfect. I'm plenty sinful, I do a lot of things wrong, and I'm definitely not always thankful on the side of the interstate when the cars broke down, okay? But I can be, and so can you. It's, it's part of what it means to be saved, and it's exactly why Paul says, be devoted in prayer. Stay in that conscious, personal communication with the God who saved you, and do it with thanksgiving. Do it with a, with a thankful heart. Again, some might be thinking, hey, prayer, it sounds nice. I think it sounds like a good thing. But how is prayer really going to help me right now? How is prayer going to help me with the stress in my life right now? How's prayer going to help my car get fixed? How's prayer going to help my marriage problems, my family problems, my work problems, my school problems? How is prayer going to help me pay my bills? Well, Paul has an answer for that and for those questions. Look what he says in verse 3 praying at the same time for us as well that God will open to us a door for the word. I think it has just kind of happened. It's, it's nothing that we've done. But I think there's times we, we, we see those well-meaning but not true pictures of, you know, a white Jesus with a perfect beard and a flawless, you know, white toga, and we forget the reality of the true things that we are reading in the Bible because we have this country club image of Christianity. Paul is writing this in prison. He's in prison right now. He's not on vacation at the mountains or the beach. 
He's, he's not on staff at some big church downtown. He's not on the speaking circuit, you know, speaking at youth conferences and senior adult conferences. He's in prison. More than likely, he was feeling exhausted and overwhelmed like everything in his life was impossible to deal with. Ever been there? Ever felt that way? Maybe you're feeling that way right now. Maybe that's how you feel today. In the middle of his greatest and most intense and, let's be honest, potentially fatal moment of life, awaiting a death sentence probably, Paul learned how to rely on God. He didn't throw a pity party. He threw himself on the mercy of God. And what he found in God's mercy more than satisfied every single need that he had. He found all he needed from the mercy of God. So from prison, Paul's writing a letter. He's asking his friends to pray for him. And what does he ask for them to pray? Well, naturally, he said, hey, pray that I would be released from jail. He didn't. That's that's not his prayer. Paul did not see prison as, as wasted time. He didn't say, hey, pray for me to get out of here as soon as I can so I can get back to the church and and start preaching again. He didn't say, hey, pray for me to get out of here so I can get out there and win all them lost souls. No, Paul looked at his prison doors and he saw them as garden doors. He saw an opportunity for the gospel in one of the worst moments of his life. Big, wide open, double doors for him to make much of Jesus. Let me ask you a question. What is the prison in your life? What's, what's the prison you're in the middle of? What's, what's that, that worry or that fear or that stress, whatever it is that you just can't seem to shake? What's that situation that you're in that, that is just so overwhelming? Who, who's that person that just seems to be making life impossible? Have we ever considered that our prison is God's opportunity? Have we ever considered that in our moment where it feels like everything is falling apart, that God might be doing something to change the history of someone's forever? And what if that someone is you? What if the someone that God is wanting to do something with is is you in the middle of that? Now look, I'll be honest, again, sounds easier said than done, right? I mean, because when we feel like we're in a prison, we're not thinking about opportunity. You know, we're angry, we're mad, we're afraid, we're discouraged, whatever it is. But really, 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 from a man who truly was in prison, you really can look at every moment as an opportunity where God is going to do something kind and gracious and merciful, an opportunity for the word, for the gospel, for the good news, even if the good news is just to capture or recapture your heart all over again. But what does that mean? Paul tells us, verse three, pray for the open door, so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ. Now, this isn't a a Scooby-Doo mystery here, okay? When the Bible talks about mystery, it's always this reference to something that's true that just hasn't been revealed yet. 
meaning the, the time has come for it to be revealed, but, but it hasn't been revealed yet. So what is this mystery of Christ? Well, in the first part of the letter, Paul said it this way, Colossians 1.27, the mystery that is Christ in you. That, that's the mystery. Christ in you. Some of us have, have grown up hearing the phrase, you know, asking Jesus into your heart. Well, that's not just a, a catchy phrase for a revival service. The truth of Scripture says to be saved to be a Christian means that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the one who is crucified and resurrected, that that Jesus who is alive right now, who is seated at the right hand of God, that Jesus is also living inside of you. How? I have no idea. I have no clue. It's, it's a mystery. It's supposed to be a mystery. It's this beautiful, grand thing that cannot be explained. And whether we want to admit it or not, we really don't want to know everything. We don't. We have been created with this mystery in our hearts. We long for this mystery. I don't know how it is, that Jesus lives inside of us. But I know that throughout the Bible, the message is clear that a believer has union with Jesus Christ, that we're connected on the inside. The song by Lauren Daigle puts it this way, you plead my cause, you right my wrongs, you break my chains, you overcome, you gave your life to give me mine, you say that I am free. How? How can this be? Here's how. Because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, loved you and gave himself up for you. That's how. Salvation in Jesus Christ is, is beautiful. It's this astounding, unimaginable mystery but it is astoundingly true. Dear Christian, you are, from the inside, connected to the Messiah. You're connected to Jesus. And why does that matter? Well, here's just two reasons. The first reason is because everyone who is important to you, they need that mystery. They need this mystery of Christ. They, they need to know Christ. So the mystery that you have is the mystery that they need. So the reason the mystery matters is because it's what the world needs the most. They need to know what it means to be in union with Jesus Christ, to be in union with the Son of God. Even though we can't really explain it, glory, hallelujah, I can't explain it. It is beyond my imagination, and yet it is real. People need the mystery. Here's the second reason this matters, that you're connected on the inside with Christ. It's because of the nature of who Jesus is. It's the nature of who you are connected with. 
Dane Ortland said this, he's an endless Christ. Let him loom above your discouragements, fortifying you afresh. You don't need an easier life. You need a bigger Christ. Whatever your prison is right now, what you need, what I need, is a bigger Christ. We, we need this endless Christ. Charles Spurgeon said the, the more we embrace, the more we learn, the more we know, the more we enjoy what it means to be in union with Jesus Christ, the happier we will be. Why? Why will we be happier the more we enjoy and embrace what it means to be in union with Christ? Here's why. Because there is something about finding your identity in Jesus Christ that changes everything. It changes every moment. It changes every situation. Your identity being found first and most in Jesus in any moment changes your hope and changes your confidence. Dane put that hope and confidence like this. You're almost home. Nothing can derail you, not even you. That's what it means to have identity in Christ. You can't even derail yourself. He goes on. When you fall, take his hand and get up. Jesus Christ is walking you to heaven with his arm around you. When you fail, look up into his eyes and let him freshly dignify and calm you. You belong to him. Be at peace and keep trudging forward, repenting and rejoicing your way toward your life's sunset. I can't say it any better. <laughs> repenting and rejoicing. Repenting and rejoicing. Those two R's are needed in every Christian's life. I've been a Christian for almost 40 years. I desperately, on August 7th, 2022, need to be repenting and rejoicing. It's what we do. We repent and we rejoice over and over again as we walk through the garden doors of the gospel. They're always wide open to us at any moment that we face. And when we walk through them, we're reminded that we have an endless Messiah. We have an endless King. We have an endless Redeemer. We have an endless Savior. We have an endless Christ. And His love for you endures forever. 